Welcome everyone, this is Carlos from SeedCamp. Today we're going to flip things around and I'm going to be interviewing the typical interviewer. A journalist, a very, very, very well-known journalist, Jonathan Mules from FT. Uh, he's here with us and we're going to talk a little bit about some of the projects he's working on right now at FT, but also about his background and some of the interviews that he's, he's had recently, the founders, and, and the things that he's learned over the course of his career and what makes a company great. But as always, we like to start from the very beginning which is the history behind the man. Uh, Jonathan, I, I know that you, uh, we were talking earlier about your beginnings in journalism, but maybe walk us back. Where, where did you study that and where, where did you start off your career? So I um, studied at Liverpool University um, and uh, I, think, I think like all journalists, I, didn't, I did not do any sort of formal study in journalism to begin with. And I sort of fell into it by just writing stuff and uh, I, I found I, I enjoyed it which I think is how a lot of journalists um, get into this um, and I, I, I did the sort of student rags and I, I then in, in my spare time in holidays I was writing on local papers and it just became a passion that grew and grew so when I, when I graduated um, I, I realised that I've got to go for this because it's a um, it's, a, it's a passion. Um, at the time, uh, this was uh, 1991, and there was a big recession going on. Um, there, uh, there were never many jobs going in journalism, and at the time, the, the industry was retrenching, um, and it just seemed a sensible thing that there, there were literally three postgraduate courses you could do in journalism in the UK at the time. Um, up the road from Liverpool, there was uh, Preston, um, uh, which is not the most well-known place, but it had a, it had this good reputation for this journalism mm. school. Yeah, there was another one in Cardiff and another one at City in London. Mm. So while I was up in the northwest, I thought, well, I should go to Preston, and, and it was a good course. There were there were really good people there from the Nationals, um, and my fellow students are now now in the Nationals themselves, including sort of editors of national newspapers. Now. So it was a great, it was a great breeding ground um, uh, to learn uh, there. But at the time, it was that was it was you were either a print journalist or a broadcast journalist. So I had to choose, and so I went into the print. Mm. Side. What, you know, I think a lot of people take journalism for for granted these days, especially with as many bloggers as are out, out there, and everybody's creating content. But you know, the culture of journalism has changed quite a bit. The investment to become a journalist. Uh, when you're deciding between print and, and broadcast is, is, is massive. And what were the motivations behind that? Like, was it uh, a desire to sort of cover specific kinds of stories, just the, the adventure of it all, war, war journalist, or what was it? And, and why, you know, print versus broadcast, you know, I mean, you know, you couldn't do either. So to be honest, I'm, I'm not sure I knew at the time why I enjoyed doing it. I, I, I didn't go through that process. I just knew I was enjoying doing it. I've since realised probably the reason I did enjoy doing it is because I am uh, just incredibly curious and I, I just like pestering people and asking questions. Uh, and journalism gave me that right. I should have studied journalism, I think. Well, it, it's, it's wonderful for that reason. I think a lot of people get hung up on the writings. It's obviously very important you can write. Yeah. Um, Although it may surprise some people, um, there are a lot of well-known journalists who can't necessarily write very well, but they have good editors yeah. uh, with them. Um, but it, it was that ability to ask questions, and I, I also realised since it's a love of communicating, mm. and it is of telling stories. That's the bottom line mm. of journalism. And that's a theme that we'll probably revisit a couple of times during our chat. What was that first story that captivated you? Like when you were like, okay, I know that the journalism at the very low end of things is probably not that exciting. You probably have to do a lot of pieces that you weren't that excited about. But what was the first piece that you can remember where you were like, damn, that was like, now I'm... Oh, it was, it was the most classic local journalism. It was again, like I say, I was doing stuff with local newspapers. And I, I got the front page splash. Mm. And it was a story about this... A girl who um, uh, who um, uh, needed a donor um, and managed to find um, uh, a, a relative who who 
had the, the very exact fit that she needed. She was a very rare case. And, mm. You know, it's a real life-saving story. It's all human interest. And that is the essence of good stories. It's all about a human connection. Uh, and that doesn't matter whether you're writing for the red-top tabloids mm. about celebrities or you're writing uh, for the Financial Times mm. ab about corporations. Um, it's the same, the same point. Stories are born out of, out of human experience. Yeah, the human experience. And the experience for many journalists isn't particularly human, at least on TV. You know, every time I imagine what the job must have been like for you in, in print, especially with the deadlines of print, you know, you imagine, uh, you know, what, what's, the name, what's the, uh, the, the name of uh, Spider-Man? Parker, uh, Peter, Peter Parker. Parker. You know, you just imagine the editor yelling at you and like, "Oh, we gotta go to print." Was that was it anything like that or? Uh, you speak as if it's in the past. Oh, Unfortunately, that is that is still true in um, in many newspapers. Although obviously the Financial Times has a very different um, uh, attitude. That's probably why you get the kind of people you get at the FT. So maybe, maybe this is a good sort of way of explaining to the founders in the room how how stories get crafted, right? There's, um, in my rudimentary understanding of it, there are stories that are very time sensitive, you know, like the, the something that's breaking news. And then there is stuff like, hey, my, my startup just raised a round of funding, or my startup just did this or accomplished this. And those probably have a longer lead time before you, you start have to communicate with a journalist and say, this is an interesting story, and this is the angle why it's interesting. How, what, how do you manage deadlines, and how do you help founders with managing those deadlines or those stories, just so they get a that, good picture for that. That is a very good question, Carl, because um, that is often the first thing you find yourself explaining to people. Um, and um, I found this particularly true with founders and entrepreneurs, that there's a process uh, to stories getting written. I don't just turn up at work, bang off uh, 500 words and throw it at a, a sum with, and say, you know, hold the front page. Mm. Um, that's that's for Hollywood. Mm. The reality is, it's a it's a, a conversation. It's a it's a it's a there's an editorial process. Um, in a in a newsroom, uh, you'll have uh, a lot of what we call desk editors, people who all their time is is looking after the um, uh, the pages of a newspaper. Now they're looking after uh, the the pages of a website. Um, uh, or, or, or it might be video or podcasts. Um, and as a writer, I go to a, an editor um, and pitch. So in, in many ways, it's something entrepreneurs should connect with. As journalists, we are selling every day. I have to go out and sell the stories I have um, to, to other people. Um, and they have to accept that um, uh, to, to get it covered. And some of this is timing. Mm. A story may be great on a certain day because maybe something else is happening and I can, I can sell it in a certain way. Mm. And another day, the, the shutters may come down because mm. there's, there's something else going on. Mm. And you have, to, you have to appreciate that, mm. that the journalist is going through that process. So this is where a founder who's really good at hacking the system would get a, a good feel for what's relevant today what are the stories that he can arm you with so that you yeah. can pitch better? And yeah. then if, if those two things happen to coincide at the right time, the probability of whatever accomplishment they've had is that much more likely to be successful. Yes. The, the, the secret is to, and it sounds obvious, but it's amazing how few people do it, is get to know what the journalist writes about. Because mm -hmm. you can then get an understanding, that appreciate they're going through this process of pitching, mm. um, but then see what things they're getting in the paper mm. and where they're getting it into the paper. Mm. And, and then step into that and say, well, why are they doing that? Mm. Um, what, what, it might be what interests them, it might be what interests mm. the newspaper. That's the, that's the people behind the scenes that you don't see these desk editors. Mm -hmm. um, they have a judgment on what kind of stories they want to run mm. uh, on their bits of the page. Mm. So you can help the journalists by finding, you know, telling those sort of stories that are gonna fit into those different formats. It might be a sort of newsy uh, sort of element. Thinking in the FT, 
for instance, we, we are very interested in stories that have real sort of data basis to them. So mm -hmm. something you can provide good solid research, and there's, there's a lot of very flaky research out mm -hmm. there, but if you can provide good solid data, um, uh, then that may, that may well fit into an FT kind of story. And mm -hmm. something that will help the journalist uh, convince the, uh, the desk editor about it mm -hmm. and, and, and talk to the journalists and, and know how we talk to one another. You don't talk at people. You have a conversation where you, you listen to what the journalist might be mm -hmm. interested in and then be thinking, well, how can I tell a story mm -hmm. around that? Mm. Um, and uh, uh, as we do in conversation, in, in good conversation, we don't talk at people, we listen to them. Mm. And then we, and we try, uh, we, we shape what we tell them to realise, oh, that's what they're interested in mm. hearing. Well, why don't I tell them about that instead of this other thing um, that, that I may be very passionate about mm. it, but actually if, if it isn't going to get through the, mm. the filtering process and the journalist knows what gets through to the, the desk editor, mm. Then I'm I'm just I'm just talking at a at a wall. Now is that something that you you've learned over the years, or is that something that you you think you kind of already had very early on, especially like the very few stories that this sort of knack for for figuring out uh, the, the the narrative required to sort of engage with somebody. I think that is something you learn as a journalist, mm -hmm. and um, you uh, it, it, you have to learn in each different newsroom you're in. There are different processes or different ways of, um, of getting through to, um, to different people and that's is there the, like a, a like maybe a, a framework that you might be able to summarize for the benefit of a founder who might be thinking okay this is a good way to think about it or is it a lot, lot softer than that for a, for a founder the advice I give is is store up your stories and and, and don't think it's about, it's about presenting this glossy mm. image of yourself. In fact, I, I think the reverse is true. And um, I, th I think people would know that in their heart of hearts. It's back to what is a story. I think most people know what a story is. At journalist school, the, the shorthand joke is, you know, that uh, dog bites man is not a story. Man bites dog is a story. Mm. And you can iterate from that. Think about it. In that very that that very cheap sort of cliched analogy, there's there's the elements in it. There's a there's a, a human element in there, mm. the the man being bitten, and and there's a paradox. There's a a perversity of what you were expecting, mm. the dog biting the man. Mm. Well, extrapolate that to life. Why 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 are our stories always interesting? Because they didn't all go well. Mm. Um, because we, uh, we were almost dead and we came back. Um, because you're meant to do it this way. You're meant to raise money that way. Mm -hmm. But actually, we did it this way. Mm. Well, that's a story. Mm. Anyone who raises money in a conventional way, well, that's boring. Everyone does that. Who wants mm. to read about that? All right, so, so flipping it back to your life story, we left off with your first job in, your, in, in, in sort of the regional paper. What was the sort of... The unexpected side that happened afterwards. I know you spent some time in New York, but like, what, what, where was the sort of the, if you will, the trough in in the career that then later led to sort of the eventual how you did it? Yeah, well, it, that's good you asked that because I think, um, well, another question people ask is, you know, when you cover entrepreneurs, oh, why don't you start something up yourself? Mm -hmm. And I say, well, actually, probably partly, uh, not just because I'm still enjoying telling other people's stories, and I see a point to that, but. Uh, journalism has a lot of similarities with startups in the, in the sense of it, um, it, uh, it's a chance moment that, um, uh, that gets you on. There is no clearly defined role to getting on as a journalist. And you, you look at a lot of the big journalists, they've just got a break mm -hmm. somewhere, but it's then rolling with that break and, mm -hmm. and grabbing it. Um, and for me, I um, after... Um, after university uh, uh, and doing this postgraduate, I um, I went to local papers and um, uh, then then I moved back to London. I, I did something I wasn't really thinking about, and, and I went and worked um, in um, uh, contract publishing um, for a little while, 
um, and and through that got into trade magazines again two things I didn't really think about mm. doing but this was you know these were these were tough times and mm. I wanted to be back in in London um, and this was this was a route um, to to doing it and I found myself in this trade magazine computing um, now at the time uh, and this was the early nineties um, uh, I didn't know much about computers. I got on this because mm. I knew a bit about business um, and there were a lot of big IT contracts being done at the time. So computing, you know, it's industry trade mag based in, in Soho mm. um, and, um, and so I had something to offer. Uh, then I came on, there was this the, um, publishing house that had all those sort of PC titles mm. and, uh, and others. So I was immersed in this world of sort of technology and gadgetry. And, and it was a pure chance occasion, and the, and the web was taking off. So there I was immersed in this, and everyone had the access uh, to it. And, uh, and I could see this, this story. Suddenly computers, which to me up until then, I mean, you know, I was a spectrum generation who mucked around with, mm. with that sort of thing as a, as a teenager, um, but never really took it on in a, you know, as a programmer or anything. Mm. But suddenly the web, this was, this was something. I could see that as a journalist, I could see that as a communication tool, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. It was suddenly interesting. And you could see what people were experimenting with, doing stuff online. And it was very rudimentary, you know, in those days. This was, you know, it's just sort of 94. Mm-hmm. Um, but it meant, as a journalist, I had access to a story that a lot of people still didn't get at that time. Mm-hmm. And I could, I could play that. And I suddenly realized, that's the story. Start talking about it, start getting out there. And, and by being on, on this trade magazine computing, I could, I could be the technology guy and, and doing sort of TV commentary and that kind of thing. Mm. So that then, that then suddenly got me on. Um, and uh, there was uh, a new newspaper created called The Sunday Business, and mm. they were looking for people. So I joined, I was you know, sort of headhunted as a technology writer uh, um, for them. Um, and... and I basically ran through the 90s sort of writing writing about this this whole world that was opening up and I uh, I moved on from the Sunday business to um, uh, a, a new magazine the Economist um, they produced specifically sort of looking at technology and stuff and again seeing this is a way of writing about this this really exciting story and I suppose I was just running at this this story mm. um, at the time that was uh, that was evolving, um, and and you're just grabbing that grabbing that opportunity. I mean, the Economist I, is is one of these publications that today is so revered in, in many ways. What what um what do you think makes their uh, storytelling that much more relevant in, in some ways than let's say other publications? And there's there's almost like they've created this halo of, of sort of authority um, without having too much of a bias, you know, politically or economic or anything like that. What, what do you yeah. think, how, how can people uh, think about structuring their stories in a way that has that authoritative tone that The Economist has without really kind of pushing too much in the outliers? Well, uh, um, the, um, the Economist, I think like the FT, it, it, it sort of by, again, by chance has sort of found itself in a very good position mm. in this age. The age of sort of instant information and uh, and and quick, dirty sort of takes on everything um, leaves a, a, a great need for people to, to get some authoritative in-depth analysis. And actually, being being an organisation that doesn't jump on everything can be an advantage uh, because you need to you need to filter news, and that's what the Economist does. That's what we do at the FT, mm-hmm. um, and. We make a, a point of saying you don't want you know we're not going to tell you everything. We're going to tell you what you need to know mm-hmm. because your time is precious. Um, and so it's working out again. You, you work out the individual um, editorial demands, and the Economist has its 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 own editorial demands. And if you read the Economist, you can get an understanding of where they're coming from mm-hmm. on things. It also helps to get to know the journalists there and. Um, and you can you can do that. They're, they're human beings. Mm. Um, don't bash them. You know, mm. come at them with something. You know, they might be interested. Like any like any mm. process of getting to know people, 
come with people with things you think you'll, they'll get to know. Mm. Don't overwhelm them. Mm. Help them. Feed them. Mm. Um, they've got they've got daily demands for things. Mm. The, the other side is listen to what they want. They may be mm. working on a particular story and work out, well, how could I feed into that? Have I got anything I could tell them about that? And then when you've helped them, mm. that's opened it, you can start talking about other things you might have mm. that you think might be of interest. So this is a, a, a maybe a good segue to talk about uh, the role of PR in these things. So if, if I, you know, listening to your story, if somebody were, unless they were really, really following you, the person, what it would look like would be that they would be seeing a journalist come into one publication and leave maybe a couple of years later, mm. uh, come in and then leave. And for a lot of founders, it's, it's like, it would sound like a full-time job to be aware of all the trade publications, understand who those people are, following them, developing those relationships, which of course we know take time. And the question is, is that really a, um, a feasible thing for a, a very time-pressed founder? Or is this where sometimes the role of, of having a PR person uh, have that as their main job? What's your view as, uh, on that? You know, it's very polarizing. I know people tend yeah. to like, be very polarized around whether or not it's actually very disingenuous to have a, um, an agency representing you. Or other people are like, actually, you know what? There's no way I'm going to develop these relationships. This person here is... It's got them. I'm gonna. I'm gonna leverage them in a different way. What, what's your take on that? Um, as a journalist, there, 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 there's a cliche, you know, of, of us and them with, uh, with the, the PR world, and, and uh, there's a concern in in journalist circles of too many PR people, and um, and that's an issue. And any journalist would much prefer to talk to the actual person mm. and know the person on the story and that's how you know we we build up sources of people and they're not pr people mm. they're they're the people really at the cold face um and there are a lot of those people who you will never read their names it's just we know them and they're good at they're good at telling you what's really going on uh there if i read now, if i read that statement it sounds to me like what you prefer is the type of PR agency that's got the network, but then just curates that network to create personal relationships with journalists yeah. to the individual, rather than trying to be like a, a third wheel. Yeah, is that roughly right? That's that's absolutely it, Carlos. The, mm -hmm. the, I, I think that's that's the secret of good PR people, mm -hmm. the ones who can enable you to get to know the real people out there, and and. There, there are great people in the, in the PR industry for doing that. There are also, of course, a lot of duffers, and, mm. and, and of course, that's, that's what journalists get irate about, mm. and uh, we'll, we'll call them inappropriately, and, uh, and, and not uh, give any sort of information apart yeah. from the, the, the party line, yeah. um, and it's just not helpful to, to them, their clients, yeah journalists yeah. uh, anyone else so inversely you could argue that if you're a founder and you are engaging with a PR firm who's feeling like they need to own that relationship with the journalist and are passing on your information to them you know that you're perhaps not in one of the better agencies because they're not enabling yeah. you but you also at the same time you also know that in order to be in a good sort of standing with the um, with the publication is that it's going to take work even if that PR yeah. firm is going to be introducing you this is not something you can entirely outsource to them if no. I, I read between the lines absolutely yeah no I, I, I'd like to very much stay on the line yeah it, you need to be open to talk to people mm. um, and and uh, because you will build trust uh, with people and and you will help tell the story uh, properly mm. um, in it and it is um, you 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 see the the, the people who um, uh, can uh, get coverage and other things it's often because they're, they're willing to talk about uh, issues um, and and they can they can communicate I think in some ways the, the better use of of uh, time and money for a lot of founders is to learn how to tell their stories mm -hmm. uh, to people, um, not to outsource that to mm -hmm. someone else. Uh, because, as you say, a, a good a good PR person uh, can connect, mm -hmm. but it relies on the on the person hiring the PR to, to know how to tell the story. Because mm -hmm. it's it's going to fall flat if you can't do that. Mm -hmm.
And then if we go back to your story, were you, up until now, where we left off at the Economist, we're still in London. We you still have to yeah. find out. So um, what happened after that? Well, uh, uh, part of the reason for joining The Economist was um, uh, I, I love travel and uh, I traveled a lot as a, as a student and uh, I thought, look, the great thing about this, this journalism thing is that you can work in, in different places. I'm, I'm ashamed to say I'm a bit of a monoglot, but uh, thankfully, uh, you know, lots of interesting places where everyone speaks English. Uh, and uh, The Economist has a big office in Hong Kong and a, a, um, a bigger office in New York. Um, and so uh, I, I got a transfer to the New York office. Um, uh, and uh, my uh, um, girlfriend and my wife came over and um, and it was a great experience and that was that was something I really wanted to do to see experience of another culture and be over there so I, I moved over there um, Peter and, Parker lives there yeah. yeah there you go well and uh, I, I think you know if, if there are there are people you know you can move between cities like London New York mm. uh, Hong Kong uh, uh, and probably, you know, there's a, there's a handful of others as well, where the, the, the residents of those cities have far more in common with each other than yeah, it's true. Uh, than their, their compatriots. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, it was great fun. Anyway, the the, um, the FT was hiring mm. um, at the time, um, and so I uh, I jumped ship um, while I was over there. I see. Um, uh, you know, partly because I, I think we realised we, as much as I love New York, we realised it was a, it was a temporary thing. It was, it, and uh, my my wife and I we sort of took the approach. Look, well, this is going to be a great holiday, uh, a working holiday um, for a, for a few years, and we had some fantastic friends, and we, we you know, we we really enjoyed being part of a community and a neighbourhood there, um, which will. You know those those relationships will continue, um, but it was like we've got to have a way of getting back um, as well, mm. and and London was was buzzing mm. um, as well, and I think Were you writing this about roughly? what year was this roughly? So this was the uh, end of the nineties, sort of early two thousands, mm. um, and so it was it was great to be sort of it was like cross connected really buzzing, right before yeah. the, the bubble popped in. in yeah, it was a great time to be in New York because we went, you know, we had the dot-com craziness at its height. Mm. Um, uh, That's when um, Cosmo.com was around and Whoopi Goldberg, I think, was one of the spokespersons. All that, all those things. All that nonsense yeah. of pets.com. Yeah, pets.com with the talking puppet, yeah. Uh, and, um, uh, and I remember there's, you know, I remember people from London who I got to know in the sort of tech community mm. there sort of setting up in New York and one guy saying, you know, this is, this is just like in the 80s when everything was going mad and I just first got into sort of tech entrepreneurship mm. and, and it's, you know, it's, it's all going to go wrong and, and sure enough, you know, that did, yeah. did. But, um, but you had already, moved, when it went wrong, you had already moved. Yeah, I was, uh, it, it was, you know, it was fascinating to be, it went pop so mm. much bigger in, in the US and particularly in New York. Mm. Um, uh, as well as on the um, the west coast, and um, so to be in the middle of that, and then you then you had the uh, the sort of political stuff as well with the the, the two thousand um, election mm. and and the hanging chads and, and then obviously the, the immensity of um, nine eleven, and um, there was you know it seemed it was the whole things on my beat and, and off my beat that were going on, and it was it was a great time. The FT was. Was growing in the US there, and there was a real camaraderie mm. in the office. Um, so I mean, you, you know, that means that you've been in FT for for a very long time now, and, and in many yeah. ways, you know, you're part of the leadership team there, and, and you've you probably have a legacy of, of some of the ideas that you've implemented, and, and some of the culture there is, is a reflection of, of your time. Maybe what what are the highlights maybe of that time that the the sort of the highs and lows to, till today. Um, I think the the great thing has been seeing from when I joined, and there was, um, uh, you know, this this new dot com mm. thing um, uh, was was still very sort of fledgling, mm. and and debates we'd have in in I remember in the office in New York, you know, we'd 
talk about stuff and seeing stuff come to fruition. And uh, and I, I generally do believe this. We you know we're uh, uh, you know we've done a lot of innovating that that others are sort of catching up with. And it's kind of funny in in this very sort of old um, newspaper mm. uh, to be doing some of this stuff. But there is a there is a spirit to experiment in it. It's not not perfect. No no company is perfect within it. But um, we. Um, We've just been able to run that bit faster um, than the others and make things happen. And a lot of that stuff we talk about in the 90s, and there were some quite sort of forward thinkers in the New York office at the time, and, and it's amazing how some of that stuff has come to pass um, about, you know, and there's this bottom line of getting people to pay uh, for this stuff mm. online has happened. But um, I think, um, you know, personally, the, the big achievement of just... Having come through the tech side, I suppose, again, it, it, there's been a refining process. For me, the, what I realized was what's really exciting about technology side and technology industry um, is, is not tech. There were, there were big tech companies I used to cover in the 90s and used to go to the you know, Comdex at its sort of height in Las Vegas. And mm. the, when it was this big industry of the IBMs and the Microsofts and these... Uh, uh, these companies that now sort of look like they're dinosaurs. Mm. Um, uh, it, um, what's really exciting was that the mammals coming through. Mm. And what was exciting wasn't necessarily that they were tech, but tech is absolutely key to any sort of mm. entrepreneurship. But that they were entrepreneurs, and there was, um, there was a changing of business models mm. uh, uh, within that. And so being able to cover that um, and coming into that sort of eight years ago, I, I found fascinating and being able to unearth that. I sort of came into it, sort of, having come back to London, there was a sort of, you know, what we'd have was a sort of enterprise beat, which was traditionally sort of covering small business mm. and this, this sort of bracketing of, of uh, which is sort of laughable when, when 99 point whatever mm. percent of companies are small. Mm. Um, uh, and they're not all the same. Mm. Um, uh, I sort of took that and, and we sort of twisted it to say, well, actually, the FT, yeah, we, we're interested in, in, um, in the, all these businesses that are 99% of businesses, but we're really interested in those ones that are actually what you really call entrepreneurial businesses, mm. ambitious businesses. Uh, and they may be small mm. um, uh, in the sense of headcount and mm. people, but they, they've got massive ambition to... I've... I've become big or, or you know just make a dramatic difference mm. uh, in what they what they do and tapping into that and that's coming back to this sort of founder and the, and the, yeah. uh, the sort of people who come through seedcamp it's not not exclusively uh, those uh, we may not even think of them as tech companies mm. but being able to unwrap that and say there's this there's this fascination there's this cultural change um, of, of doing that and, mm. and and that, that genie is now out of the bottle, and I, I'm really proud of being part of making that a big part of the mm. sort of FT's coverage. And it now, it now you know, we, we do it in all sorts of different ways. Yeah, and, and that's given you a lot of exposure to both the, you know, the complexes of the world, sort of that, and I want to go back to that a little bit to sort of see what cycles and what sort of things you see repeat at the end of a cycle. But then it's also given you now the freedom and trust within the organization in FT to, to lead the initiative towards these smaller businesses and, and build those relationships. And in, in the case of last year, August, launch a podcast where you're, you're, you're getting to interview founders and, and also tell their stories a little bit more deeply. Um, but before we kind of talk about those things, that kind of trust also allows you to tell more personal stories. And from what I understand, you had the chance to talk a little bit about a personal story uh, regarding a, a, a situation where you yes. became doctor at home. You, you want to share that story? A midwife. <laughs> Call the midwife. Um, the, uh, so this is where I can say, you know, to, to any, any sort of founder or entrepreneur, look, I, I know what it is on your side because I've done it myself, sort of pitching myself. Mm. Um, uh, it was um, nine years ago, uh, we'd, uh, uh, we'd started the family. Um, uh, our first child um, was almost a home birth because he came out very quickly. Unfortunately, we managed to get to the... Uh, the local hospital on uh, uh, in time, um, but we uh, it was we were very lucky that it was a very it was very sort of straightforward and, and quick, uh, thankfully for my wife. 
Um, and so we did think, well, we, you know, we, we only had to hang around in hospital. Why, why not do this thing at home? And there was mm. this sort of big push in, in the UK uh, at the time, particularly about, you know, why not more people try home births and uh, help us with, you know, good middle class um, urbanites. Um, we have to follow these trends. Mm. Um, so uh, we uh, we set up and, uh, uh, and, and the, the hospital very supportive and, um, and so uh, we had a visit from the sort of head midwife and she bought this big yellow plastic sack of bits mm. and and the lies you sort of wait till the moment and then you um, call call up uh, this number and, and they, they dispatch a midwife to you um, and, uh, and and the process goes through. Uh, you know, you have a, a room with uh, lots of plastic on the floor. So we, uh, uh, the, the time came, um, uh, things were rocking. We, uh, we sort of knew having done it once, you know, that this was, uh, this was happening now. So we called the hospital and they said, okay, we're going to page the midwife. It's the middle of the night, mm-hmm. um, one o'clock in the morning. So, um, uh, uh, we wait and they say, oh, we'll be about half an hour, half an hour comes and goes. And, uh, and no midwife called back slightly more tense response from, uh, from the hospital, you know, uh, um, you know, it's okay. We've, we've We've dispatched her. Anyway, you know, things start happening. Uh, we, we, uh, someone has to act, uh, and uh, it was Muggins' turn. Um, and uh, and so, uh, uh, you know, we, you're like, oh no, yeah, this really does come down to me. Yeah, um, but I must say, Carlos, that the, the thought that was going through my mind at the time. And this is where I realise why I'm a journalist. Is this is a fantastic story? <laughs> Let's just get through this, and I'm going to be able to pitch this to someone at some stage, um, even if it's mates down thank the Thank goodness there was no periscope or meerkat. That would have been too much. Yeah, yeah. But so, and so fortunately, everything did go to plan. The, the, the corp was a bit wrapped over um, Isaac's neck, uh, uh, I managed to get that off, and we and we had the old cliche towels and hot water <laughs> and uh, by this point we phoned 999 and uh, it, it seemed like an age but it was probably about five ten minutes after the event that uh, the ambulance um, uh, arrives and um, and and, uh, and they helped us with uh, uh, you know clamping the cord and the remaining uh, and, bits and bobs yeah I, I got to I got to do the cutting um, so I felt like I finished the job um, and you know the, the next thing I was um, I was pitching it when I was back at work um, to our magazine, and so you can read all about it um, if you have an FT subscription. Um, uh, it's there as a sort of first person storytelling. But again, I had to pitch it, but I knew it was a great story. Yeah, and it, well, I mean, again, it, it goes back to the trust that the organization has in, in your storytelling capabilities and the way to resonate with with people, and in some ways maybe it's not dissimilar to the birth that you gave to the yeah. podcast series last year. Maybe you want to tell us a little bit more about that, kind of the the, the angle there, yeah. maybe some of them. Uh, that you these these of. things are all gr- great privilege to being at the FT, that, that you're able to do these things. Um, and one of the things is, is about them allowing you to experiment uh, with new things. So we've been doing podcasts for a, for a long while. And... Um, uh, the uh, uh, the producer for the podcast actually came to me and said, "Look, can we I'm thinking we could do something a bit different." Um, and so we had a conversation, and we we hit on this idea. Look, what we what we don't do is is a sort of radio style podcast. We do lots of quick hits um, uh, on news of the day. Uh, we have things like our money podcast, which is more people just sitting around a table talking about what's in the newspaper on a, on a Saturday. Um, uh, but we, we don't have something, you know, we sort of wrap into a, a series of episodes. Mm. Uh, so let's do something. Let's do something like radio. Let's get a theme music. Mm. Um, and for me, you know, having written about entrepreneurs for so long, I said, look, I know people, what really interests people what I get so much feedback is about is about these human interest stories mm. that that travel way beyond whatever industry um, or, or 
uh, field this or geography this person is in. Mm. Um, so why don't I just go out and instead of just writing pieces about people, um, we'll just sit down and have a conversation together, mm. and we'll record that conversation, um, and then we'll knit it together like radio. We have a few other voices. Um, we try and get a, 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 a entrepreneurship or business school professor who can be a little distant and mm. but has seen enough around and you know we, we fortunately have good access at the FTs to some pretty big um, uh, hitters um, uh, at places like Stanford and, um, and London Business School um, and INSEAD and Cambridge and, and so we put together these things yeah. and, we, and we do it as a series so you know there's a beginning and there's an end we do yeah. 10 episodes um, and um, it's uh, it's been very successful. We're now we're now on our second series because it was it got it, it was by far the, the most successful thing we've ever done with podcasts. Mm. Mm. And you know, as part of listening to these stories and over the course of your career, you, you kind of see patterns. And you know, earlier you alluded to some of the companies that now feel like dinosaurs. And then you talk, you've seen companies go from, you know, two guys and, and interviewed them potentially at that point in time. And then now they're probably a lot bigger. Mm. What are the, is, is there any pattern to, to this? I mean, do, do you think that there is an element of, of pattern recognition that you as a journalist now have to the point where literally I could just give you uh, a fund and say, off you go, Jonathan. You, you've, you've seen this <laughs> enough. You've covered these stories enough. You probably already have the DNA. You wouldn't want to that. trust me with a fund. Um, but... Um, Yes, I, I, I think there are, and it is, it is one of the privileges and uh, uh, insights, I think, to know people and, and see people come through the journey. Um, what but are it, the success factors of, of those that you've seen really stand out? I, I think it's, it's a, an ability to, uh, to learn quickly, mm. um, and, it, and therefore it doesn't matter what you're doing, it's having a, it's and and the other key factor is that ambition mm. to think big, and uh, and not settle for okay, mm. um, and and follow that dream, mm. but but know that that dream is going to evolve, and it may well be completely. In fact, it probably is going to be completely different to what you did before, and and learning means also. Uh, uh, you know, as they say, uh, sort of drowning the puppets, mm. and and knowing this is not working, we have to stop doing mm. that and move on to something else. Do you have uh, a, a, an anecdote that <clears throat> pops to your mind of somebody you you've interviewed maybe over the years that when you first met them they're like, well, that's a big vision, but that's insane, and then later you interview them five years later and you're like, wow, that was not so insane. You you made it happen. Well, I I I think it just finding interesting people who've gone through so there's 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 success stories um a classic might be someone like go ape mm -hmm. um who are not a tech company they're they're an um, outdoor adventure business who create these tree chop adventures mm -hmm. and as a husband and wife we feature them on startup stories uh in in this current series running um and uh they uh, they wanted to build a business because they were sick of the rat race Mm -hmm. uh, he'd been in the army, and then and then he got into sort of financial services in in London in the sort of you know office job, and his his wife was uh, in, in climbing the, the sort of corporate ladder in sort of sales commercial side. But they knew that wasn't for them. Mm -hmm. They wanted to start a family as well, and so there there was a sense of social to it. But they they wanted to be ambitious and do something. So they they were on holiday, and they found this. Um, uh, in France, and they, they saw one of these tree talk adventures and said, I'm seeing this in Britain, let's do it. Mm. What, what made them interesting, and, and why I first came across them, was because they just had a story to tell about moving out of London into the sticks and building this business. And they, and they, they, they tell the story very well. Um, and um, so they could talk about an entrepreneurial journey that I knew people, whether you, know, you were creating the latest app, or you were, uh, you know, doing old school manufacturing. You could relate to these people because they were doing all the moving parts of setting up a team and, uh, and getting funding for this, finding the customers, finding the, the 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 place to build these things, and getting the people to build them, 
all those risks it was full of disasters and and through that success by just making it happen and they were very honest about the fact that it almost didn't happen mm. and then we made it happen because we just did this that we didn't think we were going to do mm. and do it and and it's seen that business evolve from uh, a, a sort of few uh, sort of sites in uh, in in the UK and uh, in England to begin with and then across the UK but now now you know they're across the US and they're, they're growing big and I think the, the lesson from them was they just had this big walloping ambition and I don't think they even realized what effect that was having mm. around them because they were just talking so big mm. that they they actually confessed in this in this uh, this episode we did with them for startup stories podcast um, that only later did they find out people didn't compete against them in, in where they were starting in the UK uh, because they really thought they were they were enormous because their website made them look like this multinational uh, brand and they just had this great go ape uh, brand and he called himself you know chief gorilla um, and uh, and that ambition they didn't even realize it, it um, and communicating that uh, well um, enabled them to to grow big now there are there are other people I, I suppose another interesting one so the guys uh, uh, who started uh, Halo mm-hmm. um, and I got to know them before Halo mm-hmm. uh, a, a guy Jay Bregman who uh, was at a company called eCourier yeah. in um, uh, in the east end of London um, off of Brick Lane um, uh, in uh, in this old brewery the Truman Brewery which is a sort of epicenter now for uh, for some of the tech startups mm-hmm. and um, and they they just uh, uh, came to me sort of out of the blue and we as I do I kiss a lot of frogs and we just had a good coffee and, and they had an interesting story about this this idea they were trying to do mm-hmm. of um, uh, they were trying to sort of consolidate the career market mm-hmm. and using technology uh, to do it because we all know lots of people trying to do that are, Consolidate with technology mm. in the in the taxi world and other things now. And mm. They they were they were trying to do it then. They they couldn't do it in the courier market. Mm. It was too fragmented. Yeah. Um, but they were telling the story about how tough it was, and then um, uh, then they they walked away uh, from that. Mm. And then Jay realised there was an opportunity in the cab world. Now, yeah. you know, we're, we're seeing that story play out. Who knows where? Yeah where those founders uh, go next. Mm. Um, but you you see a process going from something that was, eCorea is, is still operating, but it's a, it's, a, it's a small operation. Halo's still operating, it's a, it's a bigger operation. You see highs things, and lows, right? It's, yeah. It's gone through its highs and lows. Um, yeah, so I mean, you, you've, been, you've been a witness to that, and, and it sounds like uh, now you, you can channel that through this series. Other podcast series, which I encourage all of you to to subscribe to. Um, well, to to wrap up, one of the points that we um, we talked about earlier was this element of plugging founders into communities, and um, some of the things that you saw were around uh, founders finding a way of networking as a way of preventing that feeling of loneliness and per- perhaps that feeling of frustration uh, mm-hmm. and, and lack of opportunity coming from it. Maybe you, you want to comment on what you've seen work there. Well, it, um, it it's really about this communicating. It's about this talking. It's about um, it's about plugging yourself into places where you can share that. Um, and uh, that word networking, mm. um, uh, which covers a multitude of sins, mm. but um, it's a it's about finding finding people you can share uh, those those stories with and being. Being honest about them, and that might mean being in a uh, in a particular environment, mm. um, like here. You know, we're at the, the campus uh, building in in London, uh, where there are different sort of founders together, and they can just bounce off each other and meet each other. It might be through a seed camp, mm. um, where you can be intensely with mm. other people sharing that story. But longer term, you've got to find different networks to do that with. Mm. Uh, there, there are in a city like London, um, there are a myriad of, of um, uh, supper clubs, sort of dining events you can do where you can 
you can meet people. Uh, and it seems silly just going to dinner, mm. but it's amazing how much of an effect that can yeah. have just in a chance conversation um, mm. with someone. But it means also plugging yourself into all sorts of communities that you wouldn't usually connect with. Mm. And that might mean um, the, the businesses down the road to you. Uh, that might mean um, you know, the people you meet at the school gate if you've got kids. Um, and, and connecting with those people. Mm. Not, being a, not being a bore networker, be a human mm. being mm. and just talk to people. Um, but that sort of honesty sharing, mm. uh, it's amazing where it goes. You ask someone about something, you tell them what an awful day you're having. Mm. And um, people empathize. Mm. And, and you know, sometimes they, they put you in touch with people. Mm. Um, who uh, may actually provide you with the answer mm. uh, you were looking for. But if you, we, there's, a, there's a human nature also to sort of clam up, mm. try and put on a front. Yeah. And I, 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 I've seen this too many times, and entrepreneurs are very positive, uh, which is wonderful, but the flip side of that is this, this putting on of a mask and mm. pretending all's okay. Yeah. And, and, and we think, that's the way to survive. Mm. And you, you look at the really successful founders, and a lot of those people I've mentioned, they're, they're, they're interesting because they've told you the reality um, of things. And you know what? They're not dead. They're succeeding. Mm. They're moving on. Mm. They may have been through failures from some really tough times, but they're moving on. Uh, and, and it's because they've been open mm. uh, with people. And people latch on to that. Mm. Um, and... And it's, it's, it's connecting mm. with people that will get you to that person who you never thought of mm. uh, um, yourself, and you mm. can't possibly um, do that. Um, uh, but they may, well, they may well be the biggest difference to your business. Well, in, in that spirit, how can people get in touch with you? Twitter, is that what you prefer? Um, I, Nowadays, journalists um, uh, prefer email. So my newsrooms used to harm to the sound of phones. And there's, mm. there's a sadness in the sense that I've lost of that. Although uh, probably less instances of tinnitus in, mm. among journalists as a result. Mm. But um, uh, you are being you know, bombarded with stuff mm. all the time. And email is a really good filter mm. for that. If you just cold call people... Mm. Um, you'll get a very abrupt response because mm. they're usually, you know, in the middle of trying to file 500 words for tomorrow's mm. paper on something. All right, so um, email you. Email first um, is a good thing. And then think in that email, how can I succinctly say something that um, yeah. is going to be useful to that person? Email, um, subject line, heard your CCAM podcast, thought it rocked, here's my pitch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Um, and... Um, uh, yeah, tell a story. Yeah, tell a story. Open, open up a little bit, um, because that's that's where trust starts. Trust builds. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us, Jonathan. And uh, I, we could go on forever. I, uh, there's so many great questions I could ask that I think a lot of founders are dying to ask you, but maybe they'll do so over email. Um, thanks for joining us, guys. And until next Thank time. You. Bye.